This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Joe Stanley is a popular entertainer who, amongst other accolades, spent 10 years hosting a number one radio show. In this discussion of her five, we discover the real woman behind the success, one whose self-doubt and anxiety belie her public persona. So we're going to start with your film, which is traditional on Five of My Life, uh, and you've chosen the 2011, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but female buddy-moving classic Bridesmaids. Tell us I about did. that. Well, um, I mean, if you don't know Bridesmaids, you must see it. It is one of the funniest films you will ever see. It stars Kristen Wiig as a disgruntled bridesmaid, a matron of honour, in fact, and I've never really known the difference between the two, except I think there's a hierarchy (laughs) amongst your friends. Uh, and it's written by Kristen Wiig and also by Annie Momolo, who, you know, both of them sort of that Saturday Night Live um, alumni. So the context of why it's a very important film for me, Nigel, is it was the first time my husband acknowledged that I, out of the two of us, generally choose the best films to watch. What films does he choose, for Christ's sake? He likes to choose... um, Satan-worshipping, supernatural, zombie, oh. futuristic horror. Okay, Team That's... Joe. I'm on Team Joe. Right. Thank you, Nigel. I mean, it's, it's obvious already before you even see the films that I choose. <laughs> I like to choose films that are really beautifully written. Often they have a female lead. Um, there's a subtlety to the story, often funny, a little quirky. Anyway, the week before we saw Bridesmaids, my husband had dragged me off to see Transformers. And I love, I quite like action films, but this was just so bad. This, I can't remember which Transformers it was. But if you know film and filmmaking, Michael Bay, who does Transformers, the whole, you know, big explosions. Well, no, but it's not just that, Nigel. Everybody has so much fake tan (laughs) that it's, it's quite alarming. And all of the girls are wearing skirts so short that you just think that's dangerous to all of us. (laughs) <laughs> so, and it was so poor that I left. I, I didn't sit through the whole film, which actually is not a big deal. I, I, have, a, I have a rule. I don't, I don't sit past 90 minutes in a film unless it's a very good film. Okay. That's my rule, right? So anyway, uh, I left Trans, Transformers and then a week later I was like, okay, I'm choosing the film and we are seeing Bridesmaids. We knew not much about it. Daz was like, okay. And I dragged him in. And, of course, he loved it. I thought he was going to cough up a lung during the food poisoning scene. Have you seen it, Nigel? I I love it. I think it's fabulous. So I won't spoiler alert, but there is a food poisoning scene that I feel was inserted to the film for the males that were dragged along to the film because it really wins you over as a bloke to a film that one of the very first films, Nigel, that I think convinced Hollywood that you could have a blockbuster driven by females 
writers, performers and female stories. And I remember watching it going, this is phenomenal. This is a distinctly female experience, which is to be a bridesmaid and to feel like you are being usurped in your friendship. It's, that's a very female kind of experience. But it's so well-written and so funny that you don't have to have experienced that yourself to enjoy it. My husband loved it. And, you know, for years I've been saying the same about, like, action films. I don't need to have hung off a plane like you do in Die Hard 3 to really enjoy that. But for some reason, female stories have been relegated to only female audiences. But Bridesmaids just blew that apart. And I think quite a significant film. If you think back to Thelma and Louise, that was Mm -hmm. 20 years uh, prior. And and that was, you know, lauded as, oh, my goodness, we can have two female leads. How amazing is that? And you know the Bechdel test, don't you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so it, it, wonderful to have a film that's all female leads. But, you know, Hollywood, it can't help itself. It's, it's the, so they take the wrong lesson. So, what, what, it, you know, so they think it's it was a success because of the gross-out gags and all that stuff. It, well, it was a success because it was really well-written and very oh, funny. But they, so you know, funny. Just because it has some gross-out humour in it, they think we've all got to go slapstick. But I, I, yes. I think the, the, the female... People say, you know, female comedians aren't funny. They are my favourite comedian. I mean, whether it's Tina Fey or Catherine Tate or Sally Phillips or... I mean, they're, they're just... You know, they're brilliant. Kristen Wiig or whatever else. But, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. I think women get... I mean banging the same old drum, but women get a raw deal in Hollywood because you think, well, we've got to have Brad Pitt or, you know, George Clooney. Well, and don't get me wrong. I love Brad Pitt and George <laughs> Nothing Clooney. Nothing wrong with those two. <laughs> <laughs> and when you mentioned Thelma and Louise, you can't think of it without very young Brad Pitt just being absolutely That was his adorable. finest moment jumping on a bed. That was fantastic. <laughs> but you're, you're exactly right. To, to sort of broaden our understanding of what... Um, what are firstly women, female stories, but also to know that you don't have to be a chick to love it. But when you talk about funny women, I I was raised by women. My father died when I was very young, when I was four. So there was my mum, my grandma and my nana who were very, very influential in my life. And my nana and I used to sit on the couch together every Sunday afternoon and watch I Love Lucy and just with laughter at Lucille Ball and I have a, I actually have a tattoo of Lucille Ball because of partly that memory but um, because she was hilarious but exactly like Kristen Wiig and Tina Fey and Catherine Tate and the people that you mentioned, she owned her career, she owned the studio, she was the first female producer to really hold the studio to ransom and say, you're going to pay me what I'm worth. She was incredibly visionary. We wouldn't have Star Trek without Lucille Ball. Did you know that, Nigel? I didn't know. Tell you us, didn't? Tell us a story. I didn't know. Well, well um, so obviously this was in the 70s so she was quite well into her career by then um, and she was the head of her studio and she was at a board meeting where everybody in the board meeting uh, dismissed this new idea of a TV show set in the future in space called Star Trek and she said, oh, no, we're making that. And they were like, no, it'll never work. It'll never work. It'll never work. And she insisted, and hence we have Star Trek. So good on her. Good on her. But, you know, the thing about her is that she was so courageous in her performance. She never, same as Kristen Wiig. You just, and I remember at university, I started doing comedy reviews, and there was a woman who was uh, three, two, three years ahead of me in um, uni, and I would watch her on stage, and she had no. Shame. Whatever it took to get the laugh, she went there. And Lucille Ball was the same. 
and Kristen Wiig and those sorts of women, they just know, you can't, You know, there's no, it's all courage. And, I, in, and in fact, like Lucy Ball was quoted as saying, and I love this about her, she said, I wasn't funny, the writing was funny, the directors were funny, the situation was funny, what I was was brave. Right. And so I really kind of embodied that as I, I did comedy for many years, live comedy, and I've produced my own work and I really embodied that and thought, okay, so... How can I, how can I really call on that on the times when I'm absolutely shitting myself? Where can I go that's really pushing my, my boundaries and, and creatively and, and even just your dignity? I mean, don't even worry about it as long as people are laughing. <laughs> it's really inspired me. And Bridesmaids um, is very much a part of that kind of, uh, I suppose, um, inspiration for me. So it's interesting you're talking about courage and comedy. Steve Martin's got a wonderful uh, story about um, if you are dying on stage as a comedian, you've got to have the innate humble strength to give off the vibe that it's the audience's fault. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You go, you, you Muppets just aren't getting this comedy. And, and, and that not be forced. You know those comedians that yes. apologise, oh, sorry, this isn't very funny. You go, mate, I need to feel I'm in safe hands. So that if the person yes. on stage, even if they're bombing, but they yes. don't look like they care because they're owning it, that's an yeah. incredibly appealing thing. You think, may, maybe maybe it is me. Maybe I'm not getting the, the jewels that Joe is laying down. And I must say, I never had that. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't have that kind of courage as a stand-up comedian and probably that's why I don't really do it much anymore because I, I, lacked, um, I lacked an innate sense of belief in myself and I lacked the knowledge that it didn't matter what the audience thought, I am enough. Yep. Whereas you see comics, I would stand backstage in green rooms and I'd see admittedly mostly male, I'm going to say, Nigel, comics come backstage repeatedly having, having died <laughs> and just thinking they were awesome. <laughs> that went well. <laughs> and I'd be like, why haven't I got some of that? What, what, what have they got? What magic do they have? And perhaps it was bravado and they didn't really feel that way because the green room is... You know, there's more performance that goes on in the green room than actually on stage, I think, often. Uh, so, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I don't think I was made to be a stand-up comic because I haven't – I'm better now, but back then, no, didn't, was not able to convince the audience that I was pretty happy with who I was. We're going to move to your book on Five of My Life, and you've chosen uh, the first book of the wonderfully named Lucy Maud Montgomery, the Canadian author who published this book in 1908. It sold over 51 million copies. It's the wow. children's classic, Anne of Green Gables. Yes. Well, I lived for this book as a child. It was everything to me. I didn't realise I was reading my first feminist book, actually, at the time, Nigel, and I've gone on to read many since. And might I say I saved you from those because <laughs> when you say important books, I had a list to choose from and all of them were pretty heavy going, like, you know, you Simone de Beauvoir, Second Sex, Female Eunuch, Thanks to Mangria, all of that. So the thing about Anne of Green Gables was she was unusual like me. She was, um, had a very unusual family in that she, her, both her parents were dead. So for me, because my father had died and I, you know, was raised by a single mum, that was pretty unusual in the 80s. So I related to the fact that she had an unusual family. She was skinny-legged. She was very awkward, but she dreamed of being beautiful, which, you know, I, I did. 
and she had this obsession with just fantasy. You know, she would make up these beautiful passages using her imagination. That's what I used to do. Now, I, this is the 70s and early 80s of Melbourne. So our house was all brown, very suburban. Everything was, that's my memory. Everything was brown. All the, all the houses had kind of those orange and brown external blinds on them and everything was just very drab. And I dreamed of living like in a green gables, right? So we lived, we had a park behind us and I used to go down the back of our house to this park and there was a river and I would sort of build cubby houses and imagine that I was in green gables. And <laughs> it was just, for me, she, the fact that Anne with an E, um, was able to imagine herself out of her existence, taught me that my imagination was really powerful and also that she was ambitious and she had a fire in her and that taught me that I could have dreams and have ambition. I didn't really know what my ambition was but I just loved that I could dream of maybe being an actor or maybe being a writer or maybe being, you know, a flight attendant for some reason featured. <laughs> I don't know why. But, you know, just it just really taught me that you could have a life outside of your very drab existence. And I, I really loved her language. I loved how dramatic she was. You know, I loved that she would sort of just roll around and be, you know, oh, woe is me. And, and I would try that on my mum and she would say, yes, pull your head in. I'd be like, I'm in the depths of despair. And she'd be like, well, you, you can't be in the depths of despair because you left your homework at school. Just, you know, make it up. Like it was just, I don't know, I wanted to live the life of, of Anne with an E. But isn't it fabulous when, when great literature, without being pretentious, it makes you feel normal and it inspires you and it lifts your eyes to what you can be. And, and that book, do you know the story about the author? No. Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, I, so she had the most brutal, so it's amazing that she wrote that book because, which, which, I mean, sort of feminist before the, the label feminist, but very mm. inspiring and empowering towards women, is she married a Presbyterian minister who basically didn't like women and in particular mm. didn't like her and was depressed mm. and would regularly say, I wish you had never been born, I wish our children had never been born, would, wouldn't refuse to help in any way as a policy, refuse mm. to help anything. Her, she had three sons. Her second son was still born. No sympathy there. Just get on with it. Do the dishes. Kept her in a house with no toilet or bathroom for mm. the first 11. So, so this, this woman is living and she thought it was her. She had this, it was so sad, this passionate, sexless, brief love affair with a bloke who treasured her, mm. who then died, you know, for influenza or something. And all her life, you know, hankered after Hamilton was married Aww. to this goose and thought it was her Christian duty to look after him, so stayed in a life of utter misery and then died and he died a year later. I'm so angry at Mr I'm, Montgomery. I'm angry too, <laughs> but it's not a story I haven't heard before, as in... No, well, yeah, that's why you I know, told it. It's yeah, just, yeah, it's the common... It's, it's so common for women of that era, A, to be oppressed by the church. That's why it was set up, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and B, to have that loveless marriage where you are effectively a servant. I mean, it just... Uh, I, yeah, that angers me enormously and I feel incredibly sad. But from that oppression, she created, clearly... Anne of Green Gables as a way of living out her her That's dreams, right. 
And she's done that for generations of girls and women since. Uh, I feel really quite moved by that. Yeah, that I know. Well, that. I mean, hey, five of my life, that's what we do. Uh, but yeah. now, but tell, tell me, Joe, if, if you don't mind, what, what, what happened to Dad? I mean, when... Um, well, my uh, parents were missionaries, talking about Christianity. Um, and my... Uh, so they were missionaries in Papua New Guinea, and my dad was a pilot, and he was killed in a plane crash. Oh. So, you know, that that's... Um, something that is obviously really sad and, and very tragic, but it had, you know, it's, I guess, that profound impact that has on your life from that very moment until this moment I'm standing before you. It impacts who you are and your relationships and, you know, your view of the world. And I guess as a child, I was very, I was seeking other stories of kids who'd lost their parents mm. because I didn't know anyone in my life who, in my real world, who had experienced that. And people were really weird about it. Like, you know, parents, adults, other friends' parents would be really weird about it and make you feel really awkward. And, you know, so you, I, I guess I, I really sought some understanding of what it's like to have that experience and to know that my feelings and grief were the same as other people's, I guess. And, and did, did mum have a repartner or anything? Or? No, no. So um, she's now, that was uh, 44 years ago. And no, she's not repartnered. So it was it was a pretty, um, like really, really hard for her and not, not an easy house to live in for her or any of us really. So again, literature was just an escape for me mm. and, and that park and the fantasies that I created and, and the world that was really limitless. Anything could happen. Yeah. It was just, um, yeah, beautiful to really kind of dive into. Fantastic. We are going to add to the Five of My Life Spotify playlist one of my favourite songs, Praise You by Fatboy Slim. I sent you the House Martins clip. Did you watch you that? You did. I loved it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a different time of music that was. Yeah. Like it was innocent. Oh, yeah, gorgeous. And he's so fresh-faced, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. But yes. t- t- tell tell us your story about Praise You. Why have you chosen that? Um, well, um, Praise You was our bridal waltz, my husband and I, Daz, when we got married in 1999. And it was, um, we were, gosh, I was 27, which frankly, if my daughter comes to me at 27 and says, I want to get married, I'll be like, you're too young. 27, too young. You're oh, I joking. think that's way too young. Well, how old were you when you got married, Nigel? <laughs> oh, I was 27, actually, yeah. Were you? Yeah. There you go. I don't know. It feels like that was really young to me now. But um, we were very into uh, raves and that was as that was as soft as we were willing to go as far as dance music was concerned for our bridal waltz inverted commas. So, you know, I had my nana up and I had my uncles and aunts and my mum and everybody up dancing to Fatboy Slim, which was super cool. But that song, I mean, it's got what I counted them actually got 28 words in total in the whole song, really, because it's just repeated over and over. Um, but they're the most appropriate words for, a, for a, a lifelong relationship. We've come a long, long way together through the hard times and the good. I have to celebrate you, baby. I have to praise you like I should, which I like that night. Yes, I've always good. liked the word should in there because you've got to remember sometimes to praise someone because at, at the heart you might hate them. Because <laughs> you do, don't you, in long-term relationships. You have moments where you wake up and you think, if I have to hear his nose whistle one more day, 
I just can't. I can't bear it. But then <laughs> this song, I don't know. It's, we've returned to it many times over the years through the hard times and the good. And it's reminded me repeatedly, I have to praise you like I should. And, and it's like actually a term that I love, unconditional positive regard, which I learned, yes, I learned it in a, um, a life coach course that I did. Carl Rogers, nineteen sixty-seven, the famous U.S. psychotherapist, coined that. Is it true? Well, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. I'm smarter than I thought. Um, but yeah, unconditional positive regard, which is basically that. I have to praise you like I should. Now you, ha- now you can't tell that story without expecting me to ask. Therefore, I'm going to tell me about the courtship. A, a tell me the name of your fella, and tell me how you met him, and who approached who. Uh, his name is Daz. Dad, D-A-Z. That's, yes. got, that's got to be a shortening of something. Well, see, you're very British, so you don't realise that in Australia, Daz is always short for Darren. No, Dazza. D- <laughs> he, he gets Dazza <laughs> by his mates. Um, sometimes Daryl, but he's Darren. Right. Um, uh, well, uh, he was doing a, uh, he was a student, he was doing a PhD at RMIT University and I was working there producing student theatre. Okay. And he, he auditioned for a play that I was producing and he was very bad actor, but we needed guys. <laughs> we were a bit light on for guys. <laughs> so we cast him. He had very nice biceps. I remember that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. We pashed on at a cast party, as you do. You actors, honestly. <laughs> you theatre types. <laughs> That's why you're in the plays, don't you know? <laughs> how, long, how long has it been now how, since you have been spliced? Oh, 21 years. 21? Uh, congratulations. Yes. Um, but yeah, he saw that because he had never done a play before and I'd put posters up around and it was an adaptation of Neuromancer, the William Gibson novel. And he is, uh, you know, sci-fi, as I said before, with his movie selections. So he saw this and he's, he was new to the university. He just transferred there and he saw the poster calling for auditions and he thought, oh, well, I'll audition for that because arty chicks put out. <laughs> Or do you think he secretly auditioned because he actually had eyes for you already? No, he not. You know, he had not seen me until that moment in the theatre when he was auditioning, and he tells me he he'd never seen anyone so beautiful in his life. Oh, I love it. I, I wish this <laughs> and, wasn't wasn't a podcast so people could see your face light up when you say that. Oh, well, I believe him. <laughs> I believe him. <laughs> but he, I remember what he was wearing too. He was wearing shiny navy blue speedo tracky dacks. A lime green Adidas muscle shirt, T-shirt, and he had this strange little beanie on his head, which nowadays would be very fitting with the hipster crowd, but back then, not cool at all. It, it but, sounds um, a bit Kath and Kim to me. <laughs> a little, perhaps. <laughs> but, yeah, there you go. So um, he said he thought, I'll do this because Artie Chicks put out, and so it turns out I did, and here we are. I love it. <laughs> how, well, how can you top that? Um, we're going to move to your uh, place, which is uh, Point Ormond uh, mm-hmm. in Elwood. I, I Google mapped it and sort of read about it, but I, I couldn't really get much from oh, that. So, so sent, tell us about it. I should have sent you a photo of it. So, okay, um, in uh, it's in the inner city Bayside suburb of Elwood and Point Ormond is a little sort of hill. It's right on the beach. Um, and it's only like, it's quite steep, steep enough for it to be a bit of a workout to run up, but it's only like 
500 metres or something. And at the top, they've built this, I don't know what even it is. It's like a white sort of little kind of a flagpole-y, tenty structure. I don't know. You can sit under it. But people sort of gather there. They watch the sunset there. From the top of that hill, you can see the full view of the city skyline right around the whole bay to the other side. And I've been, I didn't grow up in in that part of the world, but I've been living in that part of the world for about 20 years. And so I've run past that particular point, Ormond, Ormond Point, Point Ormond. <laughs> I've got to get it right. Point Ormond. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know how many hundreds of times I've run past it because that's my run. So I've been doing that for 20 years. I have ridden past it. I've pushed my kid in a pram past it repeatedly. And I've sat on that hill and meditated repeatedly. And it's a really beautiful place. Like, you know, the traditional owners, um, it was, it's Bunurong land and it's, it was very much where they fished and they lived. So I feel that energy of the place. It also has the history of, you know, the first settlers. I actually read, Nigel, that there was, a, there was a, some kind of ship that came in with a yellow flag for quarantine in 1840, and here we are, still quarantining, <laughs> not much has changed. Anyway, but it's got this history, and I've sat on that hill and um, for 20 years meditating, just feeling the breeze on my face and really kind of honing my mindfulness practice on that hill. It feels very spiritual. I, I love it very much. T- and I don't know, I was just going to say, I, um, one of my favourite quotes is from Isaac Dennison, who wrote Out of Africa, and she said... Um, the cure for all things is salt water, sweat, tears, and the sea. And I've done all three of those things in that very spot. I've experienced all three of those sorts of salt waters. So I, it's very, I love it. It's very, um, it's a very, it's like my home. Oh, fantastic. Out of Africa, one of our other guests' choices, uh, Todd Sampson. But t- tell me about the meditation. For a movie. Uh, the, I was going to choose the that. Book, oh, actually. the book. Okay, yeah, right. Um, tell me about meditation. When, when did you start? How often did you do it? Do you do a mantra? Um shanti? Mm. What's going on there? Mm. Um shanti. <laughs> 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 um, I guess I started mindfulness about 15 years ago. I was about 30 or so. And I was doing breakfast radio and finding it extremely difficult to manage my anxiety around that. And, you know, you, you, I don't know, Nigel, if you're the sort of person who goes to bed and replays your day, but I did that to the point where I wouldn't sleep for four or five nights in a row, just not shut my eyes. So through insomnia, I found a really great therapist and she, um, she taught me mindfulness basically, which was just to really, um, it's just honing present moment awareness, largely noticing that your thoughts have gone, your attention's gone to your thoughts, but then returning to breath in this very present moment. And that's been a 15-year kind of practice. And I wouldn't say that I was good at it to begin with, but now it's it's just a part of my daily life. It's what I do as much as I would say I eat and drink and, and, and yeah, it's, it's really um, key to my happiness. I'm interested in, in the anxiety. When you were lying in bed, this is fascinating to me. You were replaying the past show, not worrying about the future one. Is oh, that, there's is plenty right? of future as well. <laughs> you, had the, you had the double. <laughs> you had the one too. There's lots of future, plenty of past. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody is like that. But um, uh, I think maybe it's my imagination that 
takes me there. Having a big imagination perhaps gives you a propensity to really over-dramatise what might have gone on and how you imagine people are thinking of you. And So there's, there's something you said earlier around your film choice, Joe, about uh, when you were talking about your comedy career and, and you never having the, the sort of the natural arrogance or whatever mm. that, that, that you were good enough. You know, if people mm. aren't getting it, fuck them. I'm great. They're not getting it. <laughs> um, and, and then you're coming back to your sort of your your imagination and your childhood and Anne of Green Gables and then this. It, so it, it, I, I've got a confession. Here we go. Full, full disclosure. Mm. It is I have got an unattractive uh, habit of thinking people who are in the mass media might be a bit, I don't know, vacuous and thick if, if it's to be nice about what it what do you think it, well, well no well wait so then I, okay. I, i've interviewed <laughs> um uh, commando steve and oh, o- yes. osher gunsberg yes both of whom were delightful and the opposite of those two things they were mm-hmm. not vacuous and they were not thick mm-hmm. and it's just fascinating I, it's, it's not really my world i, I but, but you you know you're so delightful and thoughtful but i imagine being the you know top rated melbourne breakfast show for 10 years people might have a view of you which is you're a bit more you know you aren't that person that's that's living through her ah. imagination and got anxiety or whatever yes i'm what i'm trying to say this is this is a ham-fisted english compliment <laughs> <laughs> okay so i can see the dots that you're drawing and let me see if i can connect them the first is um I well, the first thing I would say is I don't think you are a successful breakfast radio show for ten years if you are in fact vacuous. No, it takes it takes. It's, I, I'm to blow my own horn and the people that I was on the show that we on that show with. It takes considerable intelligence to be able to have conversations that sound like you've only just thought them up and to make them about things which you may not give a shit about, <laughs> right? If you can fake sincerity, <laughs> then you go no, to no, the no. top. No, but it's not faking sincerity. It's fake. It's finding meaning in everything. Yeah. That's what you're doing. So you're absolutely sincere. Not one word that I said wasn't true in those 10 years, right. but I was not necessarily talking about something I cared about, but I was most definitely finding the meaning in things that I knew my audience loved. Right. So that's that's the first thing. But your assertion around what my audience may have thought around my confidence, I guess, yes, that I think is true because, and it's not like a laughing clown thing. It's a, about the fact that when you're in, when you're a natural performer and you're in that moment on air and radio is a really different kind of performance and it's similar to what you're doing with podcasting, you're in the conversation and you are aware the audience is there because it's for their benefit that you're having the conversation, but you're so in the moment of that conversation and the performance of it and the engagement with that other person and really the play of it. You're keeping a ball in the air and together you've agreed to make that ball play as fun as possible. So that's all that matters. And you don't think about, holy shit, before the mics went on, I actually was so nervous I thought I was going to vomit. That did happen at times. But right. once you're on, you don't sort of think about it. But that's why it, you'd spiral later. <laughs> you'd keep the spiraling for afterwards. <laughs> but just my own special enjoyment <laughs> when I couldn't sleep that night. Sorry. So, so but you are, which I find enormously uh, a, a, a sort of appealing because it's, it's how I, in a, in a buttoned-up, repressed British way, do it. You're a self-improver. You're a thinker. You're a oh, seeker. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And... I don't know how you would live if you weren't. You know, I feel like 
um, aren't we? Isn't the purpose of being here to make the next experience better for the next person? And the only way that you can have that impact on the next person that's positive is that you have somehow shifted something in yourself. Isn't that why we're here? Well, well. So here we go. Controversial <laughs> is I'd like to think so. I'm a theology graduate. I spent seven years studying theology for, oh, for, for what my have I sins. done opening yeah. these doors? Yeah, but but, but <laughs> you'd like to think so. But I I feel and I don't blame people, but many of us, I include myself in this, uh, sort of sleepwalk through life. I don't think I'm doing mm-hmm. it now, but you can spend decades. Uh, sort of my mantra is decide, don't slide, but many of us slide. So you, wake, you wake up, you're 75, you've been divorced twice, yes. you don't know any of your children's friends' names, you, you, you know, you, you're the marketing manager of Tampax Southern Asia, and, you yes. think, and, you, and you've got a holiday house, and you think, oh, you know... And with, with respect, with respect to the marketing manager, yeah, yeah, nothing wrong with being marketing manager. Yeah. Asia, I I think that that person, and for millions of people, that is exactly how they live their life. And yeah. to a degree, I certainly did that when I was in radio. You're so fatigued and so busy. You, it's easy to fill your space with the busyness and and. Um, I've got to do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and never, ever being idle in your own thoughts and never, ever, ever addressing the voice inside you that tells you actually what is your true passion and your purpose. You're hiding. You're hiding with busyness. I'm so busy. You're hiding with entity. We are a generation that's overstimulated. Mm. You know, oh, my God, I've got no one to go out with on Friday. Oh, spare me. (laughs) I mean... But, Nigel, isn't that... uh, this, This is what makes me so sad about that is surely that's got to be underneath our chronic mental health issues our horrific suicide rate, our divorce rates, our, you know, there's so many, you know, society is sick in so many ways. And I feel like, and maybe I'm Pollyanna, I'm Anne of Green Gables, I can't help it. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like if I could just make everybody just stop for a second and breathe and tell themselves repeatedly, I am enough, I'm worthy and I'm lovable, and just really listen to what is it that I love to do and do that. Yeah. Wow. Wouldn't that change things? There's a Buddhist phrase, which is, you are good, be good. Rather than, you're already good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yes. so don't worry about it, mate. You, you, you are good, because that's yes. just the way it is. So how about being good? Just be your natural good self. Just be. Yeah. But see, we, we judge ourselves so much. And I know this because I grew up in a Christian family that you impose everybody else's ideas of what you should be on yourself. And that can take your entire life to free yourself from. Yeah. You know the, the, the book, um, Bronnie Ware, The Five Regrets of the, of the Dying? Yes. Oh, yes. God, you can't read that without. It's gosh. the saddest thing. Yeah. That, that the biggest regret being that I'd lived my life for other people. I never got to choose my own life, my own decisions. So well, this, this might be a segue to your fifth choice, usually my favourite on Five of My Life, which is your possession. And it's not really traditionally a possession. You've messed with the format, you creative <laughs> types. Um, it's a tattoo oh. on your left hand. Um, can you see there are five dots? I can actually, yeah. yeah. They look like, I mean, it could look like I've had a bit of an accident with a biro. That's kind of the size of the dots, although it took the tattoo artist quite some precision to do that. I was impressed in the end with her artistry. So t- um, tell us the story. Well, and might I say I don't really relate much to possessions, hence I found this really hard and I landed in the end on this and I'm sorry to mess with the format. 
<laughs> but you did get a creative in. And uh, one thing of 10, 12 years on Breakfast Radio, I learned never follow the rules. Um, well, those five dots represent where my daughter's fingers sat when I held her hand, when I was walking with her, when she was about um, she, uh, six years old. Oh. I know. Stop it. It makes me well up every time I think about it. So, yeah, I, I just um, put a little mark. I held her because so my favourite thing in the world is to walk. She's 11 now and still she wants to walk down the street wherever we go with her hand in my hand. And um, just her hand in my hand is a really, to me, it's a real gift that I get to have her hand in my hand and um, I get to look down and see those dots and know that even when I don't have her hand in my hand, it is in my hand. And, um, yeah, cause she's just, um, she's just a miracle to me. I, I have to say, I love the time of parenting, the era where they have to reach up to hold your hand, mm. like sort of Mowgli in the jungle, but yeah, I, yes. <laughs> your hand is down, their hand is up. They've yes. got the big, the two big hat, the two big school bag, <laughs> and it's my favourite memory. What a sweet idea for a, a tattoo that it's like sort of a. I, I've got the thing in our house of their their footprints fra- yes. framed, uh, yes. but but I've never heard of anyone having the, the the tattoo like you. And is it Willow, your daughter's name? Yes, yes. So you know, you when you talk about that age where they have to reach up, I mean that's quite a very, that's a practical thing too because they're always falling over. So the amount of times when they trip because their hand in your hand, they you know they kind of don't face plant. But, um, yeah, it's a very, um, for me, so that's about four, right, that age. And I remember because I was four when my dad died and I remember, and this is the other significance, I guess, of this tattoo, I remember walking with her and thinking, ah, oh, this, this might have been what it would have been like when I walked with my dad. And sort of it was very healing for me to imagine that, of course, he would have, he would have done that as any other father does to me and it felt like yes it existed that relationship existed even though I have no memory of it um and so yeah in every year of willow growing has been quite healing for me as far as having that loss of someone that you never actually knew that's such a wonderful fifth choice and two amazing stories well so my my I mean god call me easily please but I think some of my happiest times on this planet have been walking my kids to school yes that's I mean, you know, not not you know not that i've climbed everest but as in I, you know i've done a couple of things that that externally got attention that i get on the first page of things that are my happiest moments it's walking my kids to primary school it's true and this is where where the your hand in my hand kind of that where that actually the tattoo came to mind for me was that I don't ever want to not have that morning routine of walking to school with her hand in my hand and we chat away and now she's 11 and she is entitled to walk on her own, like very close to the school. And still we walk together and uh, I'm going to be really sad when that stops. And she is too. Uh, But, you know, she's, I'd say, a year away from screaming I hate you and slamming a door in my face. Like I'm fully prepared for that stage and um, I'll... I'll just take myself off with my my tattoo and I, remind myself that she does love me. But there's a um, there's a quote Paula Yates, poor love, uh, gave an interview and said she never ever forgot when her daughter brought her nose nose to nose with mm. her and said, 
You Don't Own Me Bum Wipe. Oh, wow. <laughs> you think, Great. Thanks for that. You know, <laughs> 15 years of my life to bring you up and I'm a bum wipe. Great. Bum wipe is quite the slap <laughs> in the face. But you know what? Her daughter's right. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm very, I think maybe uh, it's a slight reaction to the way I was raised, I guess, that I, I'm, I'm a very positive psychology kind of parent and I wait for her to teach me who she is and I don't own her. Like I feel like I've spent my entire 11 years with her just inviting her and empowering her to be the person she is so that if she chooses to be a stand-up comic, she will be able to stand on the stage and know that she is enough and everybody else can go get fucked if they don't laugh because her mother has told her her whole life that she is enough. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's been so gorgeous, gorgeous to get to know you and talk to you. Thank you for sharing your five. I'm going to come to the six traditional questions. Oh, I would like. I've not prepared anything. Yeah, that's the whole point. Oh no! <laughs> um, so, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next, and why? Oh. And before you say, it, is we go round and we call these people. So, so Gillard chose Tim Minchin, Richard Glover chose Julia Gillard. Blah blah blah. So, all right. I I would love to hear um, Bruce Pascoe, who wrote Dark Emu. Ah, I think. Um, yeah. Okay, so largely I think he's a fascinating man. That book is incredibly important. But I also think we don't hear enough Indigenous stories and we don't hear enough, um, you know, their, their culture and, and, and it's the only way we're going to find true reconciliation is to hear more of that. Wonderful. I, 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 it was a, a fabulous book. And, and the, the point in the book was fabulous as well. I mean, I mean, gosh, that, I, I felt slightly thick and ashamed that... that uh, you know, having read it, you go, well, I, no, I didn't realise any of those things. So, yeah, I'd love to get him on. Um, well, I'll tell you, have you ever travelled uh, to Northern Territory and done any of the, like, um, uh, Jabiru or Arnhem Land or no, not, Kakadu? No, not yet. I'd love to. Any, no. I'm telling you, it's the most... It's the most spiritual place you can visit in Australia. Um, I've not made... I haven't been to Uluru yet, but... Um, it's it's just something that I think should be compulsory to fully understand how incredibly profound our traditional owners' um, history and what they've given us in this land. I just you know I don't think we fully appreciate that. And yeah, so I would love to hear an interview with Bruce Pascoe. Wonderful. There you go. Ch- go challenge accepted. Right, <laughs> uh, Joe Stanley. Thank you so much for coming on uh, and sharing your five choices. It's been an um, absolute delight. Thank you. I've loved it. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 